Church Podcast Show, a twice-monthly podcast about culture, theology, and leadership. This is episode 25. We're going to be talking about politics with two of our favorite staff members, Ann Link and Catherine Hollibaugh. That's one person. And Kyle <laughs> Worley. We'll What's Kyle's be, middle name? Who cares? We'll also be talking oh, about STBC. Cool. What's my middle name? Catherine. Catherine. Yeah, you we'll just didn't there. say it, so I just wanted to make no, sure. No, did say it. I did say it. You did. Oh, you'll Lincoln, be able to. Catherine you'll Hall. be able to listen to the that. podcast okay. later in here. <laughs> well, we're also going to do on this podcast, Ask TVC, where we'll be answering questions from folks who have sent those in. So let's jump right in and talk about culture and theology. As I said, uh, we have Ann Lincoln Hollibaugh, who is. I mean, she's been on staff now 12 years, been an integral part of our team, helped shape so much here, serves as an elementary minister here at the Flower Mound campus, and is about to transition to the Village Church Denton. So kind of a bittersweet time for us here at the Village with Ann Lincoln. But we love you. We're grateful for you. There's and no look doubt. forward to the transition as well. And then Kyle Worley, who's a groups minister at the Dallas campus, and he wanted us just to be sure to say that he was working on his Ph.D., in apologetics and worldview from Southern Seminary. Just, there's a note here that you wanted us to say that. It so is in the notes. I, I, I didn't put that in there. You did not delete it. <laughs> so That's true. That's true. So let's jump right into this. We're going to be talking about politics, and it's somewhat timely. Let me see if I can just set the context, because it seems like every day there's a new headline and there's a new twist. And so uh, we are recording this on Wednesday morning uh, following Super Tuesday 2. Or Super Tuesday 3. Which one was it? I believe 2. Super Tuesday 2. It was a big Tuesday. Rubio is out of the race. It's heartbreaking. Yep. (sighs) So he's done. Uh, And it seems like Clinton and Trump are in the driver's seat moving towards the convention. There's talk of a contested convention on the Republican side. It does look like Bernie Sanders, the momentum that he has generated, potentially could be waning. So... But it's one of those things that it everything could change by the time this podcast goes live. Yeah, so, right. um, so that's where we are and what we're talking about right now. Obama's about to appoint maybe a new uh, Supreme Court justice. And so just, just be mindful of where we are in this conversation. And so uh, it's been a crazy – it's been a crazy season. Uh, it's been a crazy campaign season. And so let's, let's just kind of step back from this particular campaign and think about this – how how do we think rightly about engaging politics, right? So l- let's look at it negatively first. And so what are some bad ways to consider engaging in politics as Christians? So let's just – let's take that and, and kind of have a conversation around it. Yeah. I mean I think that's a great place to start. I think you could list all sorts of sinful ways to engage politics. You could say pridefully, bitterly, idolatrously, but I think maybe – Maybe just to kind of get the juices flowing here, I think a way that we can engage politics as Christians in a negative manner is maybe non-eschatologically or imminently. What does that mean? What I mean is that the Christian will be most fully prepared and useful for civic dialogue when the end-time hope of a reigning and ruling Christ informs their present-day interaction. Okay, so let's unpack that a little bit. So if our hope is in Christ and... uh, the kingdom of God, then we'll be able to expect from modern politics what it can deliver and not expect more than it can deliver. And so do you, you remember the, the it was a Chuck Colson speech that I believe was attached to a Stephen Curtis Chapman 
song years ago that where's the hope, the hope that each of us has is not in who governs us or what laws are passed or what mighty things we might do as a nation, but our hope is in Christ and his kingdom. Um, and, and I think that what, what Kyle's saying, what we're talking about here is that if, if we're putting too much hope in what the next president, the next Supreme Court justice, the next can provide for us, we're, we're going to be disappointed, we're going to be disillusioned, we're going to grow bitter and angry, cynical, uh, and then that'll keep us from being good citizens as Christians in a democratic republic. Yeah, absolutely. So is it fair to say this, that uh, just to kind of take that big long phrase and reduce it down, that Christians, if they forget that politics is always and only politics and never anything more— it can't deliver um, those on those great hopes, on those great needs. It it can only be political, right? Is that is that fair? Yeah, I think that's totally fair. And I think on the flip side, thinking about how to engage wrongly is also to not engage at all. And I think that there are many mm. who feel intimidated or overwhelmed or like it doesn't really matter. And especially those of us who are believers, we don't we don't and should not disengage from these opportunities to influence our culture at large. We live in a place at a day and a time where we have the privilege of voice. We have the privilege of vote um, and assault and light. We should step into those places, not to make it our ultimate hope, um, but to influence according to the gospel in ways that we can. Yeah, I think that's great. Richard John Newhouse um, says this, and I, and I love how he says that um, first thing to be said about public life is that public life, political life, is not the first thing. And I think that's a great way to capture that this tension between a faithful participation that sees the present moment in light of the eternal future and also to not be prone to disengage, realizing that there is something important to be done here. Yeah, and just considering what the Bible has to say about the role of government and what we as citizens owe, respect and honor. Multiple times the scriptures are going to commend that. So where we find our engagement laced with, um, just as was mentioned, cynicism or judgment or an overly critical spirit where that's all that's coming out of our heart and mouth, then we've strayed. Let's look at this from a little bit of a historical perspective, especially as it relates to Christians. And by historical, I'm not talking 2,000 years. I'm talking maybe the last 30, 40 years. The 80s. The 80s. And and how the 80s and 90s, maybe 70s, 80s, and 90s has impacted um, how Christians have engaged. And then what we're recognizing is a real shift as, as some of that uh, the Christian right is crumbling in a sense, and what is being formed in its place? Um, how are Christians now looking back and understanding how the church and the people of God did engage and seeing some air maybe in some of that and, and some folly in some of that? And how are we adjusting as a people to that? Yeah. Oh, man, that is a huge question. Um, I, I think a, a couple of things. One, you know, coming out of the 60s and just the really the sexual revolution there, I think Christians and conservatives really felt the need and the desire to have a unified front to approach these issues. And so you get different kind of names or labels for that. You get the Christian right, you get the moral majority. Those are kind of phrases that kind of 
seek to label what this movement was. And I think the operative assumption of those things were um, that the main way to change a culture was through changing hearts and minds and evangelism. And we want to celebrate that. We think that is a huge value. And that was a thing that guided their practice in the life of the church. But I think another aspect of that was really key to changing culture was changing legislation. And that's really been called into question recently. James Davison Hunter's book, To Change the World, has really challenged that the assumption is that, that politics is upstream from culture. When really, actually, it might be downstream from right. culture. Okay, so let's take that phrase, culture, and and I was actually going to see if I could fit that in here. Um, I listened to something this morning where that phrase was used, that, that politics is downstream from culture, yeah. meaning culture is what's influencing politics, not politics influencing culture. And so thinking about the engagement for the Christian is to think about how are we engaging first, maybe culturally, yeah. rather than politically. Or so you know, if you if you take what Hunter talks about in to change the world, he, he's talking about faithful presence in the domain in which you work. It's mm, good. So so that at the end of the day, if a if a Christian's feeling overwhelmed by the political pressures pressures and measures, the 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 answer in one sense is to be extremely faithful where you are in the domain in which God's called you. So to be a godly Christian elementary school teacher is powerful. To be a godly, hardworking welder, to be a distinctively Christian professor or lawyer or carries with it um, a culture-shaping aspect that, that then ultimately leads to, Lord willing, and, and that's the thing that has to be said about this over and over again, that we, we know from the scriptures that the Lord's at work in this political process. It, it, he is not panicked or nervous or he like he already knows who our next president is with without any shuddering, um, you know, in, in the heavens. And so uh, ultimately to be faithful where you are is how we shape culture. And, and that's why I think you're seeing um, Christians begin to recognize the importance of the cities because the the in the cities where you have the young professional um, who's shaping culture more than a TV exec is is the guy that's actually um, writing the scripts. It, it, they are the actors and actresses. They are the so it's faithful presence wherever you are in whatever domain you are in, which is why we want Christians in all the domains of society. We want Christians to be playwrights. We want Christians to be um, actors and singers. We want Christians to be involved in local politics. We want them to be scientists. I, I was just um, out at Hardin Simmons, and one of uh, the people there that was honored was uh, a woman named Dr. Camacho, who's a strong believer, who um, is kind of the the tip of the spear in regards to research around primary brain stu- tumors in children. Um, and praise God that she's in an environment that most people would consider completely secu- uh, secular, but she has just a strong belief in Jesus Christ and the Word of God, and there she is in that environment being a faithful presence. Okay, so reframing this and thinking through this, we're talking about maybe some challenges or some wrong ways to engage politically. How is it, how is it short-sighted um, or maybe a little flat to think about uh, pro-life as only being one particular initiative? And, and clearly that initiative being the right to life and, yeah. and abortion, which we adamantly oppose and uh, we oppose abortion. We're strong believers in pro-life. But how have we become short-sighted in this pro-life discussion? 
um, where, where maybe that name has been attached to a certain segment of an initiative, but really doesn't capture the whole essence of what the term could and probably should mean. Yeah, that's a great question. I think that's something that we only need to be challenged and stretched in our thinking to be holistic and consistent when we're thinking about life and being pro-life or for life and tying that to the sanctity, the value, the holiness of human life in the Imago Dei. And we have to consider um, that beyond just the unborn to those who are, um, you know, just how that gets uh, applied holistically, uh, considering um, racial reconciliation. So just thinking about us as a church and how we're considering the sanctity of life holistically, that's absolutely something that we're wanting to engage. We want to consider the poor, the least of these, those within our community that have special needs and disabilities. And life is life. And life is not more valuable because someone can contribute at a certain level of um, you know, whatever they give back to culture in terms of a productive life. Life is life because we bear the image of God. So when we're considering the political implications of that, we have to think about where that is in every area of life. So, um, you know, certain parties and, um, you know, the conservative right tends to really think about the issue of abortion and appropriately so. But then the inconsistency comes when we're considering the poor and how to care for the poor and the role of government and community in supporting those who are um, in a position of disadvantage, not because they're lazy, not because they're unwilling to work hard, but because of systemic cultural issues and lack of opportunity. Yeah, and uh, I think along with that, I agree wholeheartedly with everything uh, Ann Lincoln just shared. Um, I think when we think about the poor and when we think about the stranger and the sojourner, you know, uh, other issues come to mind, issues like immigration right yeah, now, which is, which is a really pressing issue um, with the Syrian crisis and the, just the immense, um, the immense issue of Syrian refugees right now in the world and where are they going to go? And I think about just trying to put myself in the position of a father there trying to get my family to a place of safety. I mean, that is a life issue. Um, I, we have, you know, <clears throat> there are two GOP frontrunners who have advocated for carpet bombing in the Middle East. I mean, that is, that's a life issue. Carpet bombing is. is a war crime. It's a war crime. It's something that our Air Force doesn't even do anymore. But when we have... Or um, going uh, after families. Or going after families. When we have Republican politicians whose view of life is almost exclusively... American and maybe even more particularly exclusively Caucasian American, yeah. you, the life issue will always be not as it should be. And I think that part of this, this question gets to the heart of, I think, maybe some of the Christian frustration, maybe some of the evangelical frustration with the political spectrum because the political spectrum is not capable of the kind of nuance that yeah. the Christian worldview right. requires. Yeah, that's and that's yeah. what I wanted to bring up and, and talk through a little bit because – the process, the political process, almost forces a reductionism yeah. uh, to where you're, you have two options, right? And, and they may not necessarily be great options uh, on either side. And you may value a little bit more on this particular end than you do on that particular end. But, but just as Kyle said, you can't capture all of the nuances. Yeah. And, and I think a challenge, and I've and I faced this personally, and I, I think we probably all have, then, then what what takes the cake, right? Uh, how do you how do you sift through all the values and cast a vote? Yeah, um, and and we'll get to that here in a little bit, but but just to highlight that and recognize the challenge uh, that that is, and and for a Christian to engage wrongly 
is for a Christian to be squeezed flat yep. and yeah. not recognize, no, 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 there's more to this story than, than my particular vote may, uh, may emphasize, but to, for us to reduce our worldview yeah. to the worldview of a Republican or a Democrat right. is to miss the call of Christ in our lives. Yeah, and I think also just to underscore what Matt was saying earlier, that our responsibility goes far beyond the vote that we cast because it doesn't capture the nuances as we were just discussing then our faithful presence and our embodiment of the kingdom and the values of God has to be day in, day out. We contend for justice in every way that we can, in every aspect that we can. Because you can see, you literally can see in both parties gospel leanings in the same way that in both parties you can see blatant rebellion against God's good designs. So as Kyle was mentioning, you've got Republican frontrunners that are, about carpet bombing or, you know, you got to go after their families. You got to kill their families. If you kill their families, they'll stop, which is insane. But then on the other side, you've got this compassion and care except for the unborn. Um, and so it, it's this, so like, I want to look at the Democrats and I love their desire to serve and love the poor. I, I might have a, a strong disagreement about how they how plan on happens. politically doing that, but but their love for the poor, their concern for the poor, that's a good, right thing. Um, and, and yet it doesn't apply to right the, the weakest, most vulnerable person in the world, which is an unborn child, right? And, and then on the Republican side of things, you, you can see there's some good, right, gospel value there. And and then you, you've got some sinfulness there also. And so it's you're right that, that if you go flat, we've got nowhere to go, um, which is why it, it's about the kingdom of God. It's about faithful presence. It's about not being defined by either one of those parties. I am not a Republican and I am not a Democrat. I joke oftentimes on the weekend, uh, I'm a kingdom of God party. I got my guy. Um, that's not to say I'm apolitical because I'm not. I have strong opinions and strong leanings. But but ultimately, my loyalty lies with no party. My, my loyalty lies with um, the Word of God, the practice of the Word of God in the world around me, obedience to Christ. So if we're looking at, at a transition here to talk about engaging politics rightly, what we would encourage believers to consider in their engagement, I just want to recap maybe some of the ways that we just discussed about that we would discourage people or uh, maybe some wrong ways. And and that, you know, Kyle opened it up with with uh, eschatological quote and thinking, uh, politics is not the kingdom of God and politics is not our ultimate hope. So to get caught up in a political system as if all of my grandchildren's hopes lie in this next president, all of my kids' fate, uh, rest in the hands of who this next Supreme Court justice is and whether or not there'll be a swing vote one way or the other, that, that that's a misplaced hope. Yeah. And so to encourage believers to have a rightly placed hope, a right view of eschatology, meaning what ultimately am I placing my hope in, and then not get caught in the uh, reductionistic kind of flattening of the soul and the self to, to I'm either this or that. No, I'm more than that. Um, and uh, and then I do think, even in the discussion we've had here, there could be some characterizations that are overly simplistic sure. and recognizing um, there there would be Republicans who take aim at what you just said about yeah. the poor, and there would be Democrats There's who no take doubt. aim about. So it, it's such a nuanced conversation. 
and what you just said, Matt, about letting the scriptures inform this rather than the commentators or the talking heads, I think is really important. The only thing I would add to make sure we're saying it is to have uh, the view of kingdom of God where in his hands does not remove from us the, the weight of yeah. being good citizens who are informed and engaged. Yeah. Absolutely. And, yeah. and so you can't, I don't want to give a cheap way out here for people to go, oh, no, no, I'm just going to, I know the Lord's got it. He's going to take care of it. So I don't need to be engaged because just as God has purpose to accomplish some of his will through the prayers of his people, he also has determined to accomplish some of his will via his people being actively engaged in political process. Okay, so you just set up the transition perfectly for how to then to engage rightly. This is what you do. <laughs> Thank you. You're smooth, man. Um, Appreciate so that. What, 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 what do we need to consider for right engagement? What does that look like? Well, <clears throat> I, I think we have to begin by remembering that God has a people. Uh, some of them are Americans. Most of them are not. Uh, and that we happen to be citizens in this country, uh, and that the people of God are not synonymous with this country. And so when we see that, well, then all of a sudden our vision for what could be accomplished through political processes and means will be much larger than our own selfish motives. Um, it'll expand globally. There'll be a global interest to it. There'll be a interest to it and a focus to it that uh, will not be confined to a singular, singular political party. Okay, um, so bring that a little bit to the ground. Give me an example. Uh, what would you What would you say in thinking about? Okay, so now I've got a global perspective. I'm recognizing the people of God are not just here in America. How then would I engage rightly in light of that? Well, um, you may not be swooned by the rhetoric that seems to marginalize everybody that's not in your country because you realize that you probably do have brothers and sisters that are in dire straits outside of the context of your particular like citizenship of country, but they may be part of like a co-citizen of the kingdom that you are a part of. Uh, And I think uh, that uh, enables us to have a kind of critical patriotism to where we can engage with the issues. We we can be American citizens and really be glad to be American citizens without having that be the principal way that we identify ourselves. Uh, So I like that phrase, critical patriotism. Is that you? Uh, No, that's Richard John Newhouse. Okay. Yeah. In his book, The Naked Public Square. Okay. Did you read that book? I did. Catholic Kyle's theologian, read all of philosopher. Kyle has read it. Well, PhD. Yeah. <laughs> he, that's why he wanted us to say it. Yeah. No, he, Again. He, he, he just kicked me under the table. Th- this, is a, this, is, this is a great quote from him on that topic. We must insist that patriotism is not the highest virtue, nor is it to be affirmed in isolation from other virtues and communities of commitment. What's a community of commitment? The church is the Christian's primary community yeah. of commitment. Biblical faith is the universal purposes of God that sets the context and limits of patriotism. That's that's well said by that's Richard Newhouse. It is well said. How do we then think, if we're thinking rightly, so we're in a pluralistic society, so this isn't just a Christian worldview that dominates the landscape, and recognizing that our political system has to operate in a pluralistic society. How, how, would, how would you encourage a Christian to think through that and consider that? So I think the first major hurdle is where to get good information. Mm, yeah. and, and that's, I think, the reason 
the people I've had conversations with around this, they feel paralyzed because the only information they really feel like they have access to, which isn't ultimately true, and I don't even have a good answer for this, are the partisan news networks that literally you're going to get two separate headlines about the same event politically whether you're watching Fox or CNN, right? They're partisan networks. And so the, the the first thing we have to do is find good information about what people actually believe, how they've actually voted, what they – so rather than believing the smear campaigns or, um, you know, the, the, the kind of tweaking of the truth, we, we need to figure out where to find good information and, and to have good information that informs – how we interact with the process. And I think until we can figure that out and have trustworthy sources, this is an extremely difficult thing to do because we, we're operating on half-truths or no-truths. And so now now we're in our gut, and, and our gut usually, for most people, doesn't lead you to truth, right? right. Um, and so, Kyle, are there places where um, the information's a bit more vetted, where – um, we, we can find the type of voting records. I, I know Russell Moore's listed some things on this before, and maybe the best thing to do is just send them to his blog um, or the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission's um, blog where they've got a list of places where you, you, here's where you can find that kind of information. So Because that, that's where I tend to turn if I'm going, okay, what really is this? Um, so I think that's the first big hurdle is, man, where do we get good information? If we're going to if we're going to be a part of this process, we, we've got to know some things. Yeah, I think that's really well said, and I think it's a major issue. I feel it personally as well, and I think I try to stay pretty abreast of these issues. Um, I, I think the ERLC is a great resource. I think also just realizing that um, very few issues can be explored sufficiently in 500 words or in 30 seconds. Yeah. So if you find that most of your um, consumption of news comes in 30 seconds or 500 words or less – you should probably be pretty skeptical about your understanding of what's going on. And so I would just recommend digging into some great books on the political discourse in America. I think that will train you as well as anything on keeping up with the current issues and being able to filter through what's really an important issue and what's not an important issue. So what's your favorite book on the political discourse in America? Okay, there are maybe two that come to mind um, immediately. One is a book by John Wilsey, which just came out recently. John D. Wilsey, W-I-L-S-E-Y. It's called American Exceptionalism and Civil Religion. It's a fantastic book on the history of civil religion in America and how Christians have participated in the political landscape. He's a former prof of mine. It's it's a very good book. Um, like a PhD prof or no. like your, one of your two master's profs or which one, Kyle? Um, it was a it was a former prof of mine. Yeah, thank you, Josh. Um, and then the other book would be The Naked Public Square by Richard John Newhouse. It's a fantastic book, um, and Newhouse uh, was a seasoned thinker uh, on the political landscape, and uh, you can mine that book for decades. Okay. Can we, before you transition, can we talk about localized politics as opposed to the presidential election? Is that where you're about to take us? Man. I can tell by your face. That was. No. I was actually going to talk about information one more time before we we transition out of this. Um, Let's say you don't have time to read all those books, right? So – and I realize you can make time for anything that's a priority. I I just want to put it in the context of of a mom with with three kids, uh, toddlers and – Or your wife, four uh, kids. Four kids. Life is busy. Life is full. And um, it it can be a little bit overwhelming to think – Okay, now I got to read all this. I got to do all that. I've I've got to consider this. 
500 words isn't enough. I, I need to read a discourse by, you know, a Catholic theologian named Newhouse who is going to use words that I'm going to have to look up. Um, so Ann Lincoln and I, this was probably eight years ago, um, uh, we participated in a reading group, and uh, and it was a reading group around politics. And one of the challenges that we noticed was there is so much to know about so many things that there's no way to know it. And uh, there's no way to know it, know it all. There's no way to analyze every vote for all the nuances of it and what it means and how it works out. And, uh, you know, one particular bill could be hundreds of pages long. And so it it can be a little bit overwhelming. So if we could just reduce this, not in an unhelpful way, but in a helpful way to not be overwhelming in a sense. How would we think about that? Yeah, I think that's so important. And that's why so many people disengage because they just don't know how to be informed in a way that's helpful and they want to be helpful. And so I think that really just in a practical sense, you have to enter into the information you are receiving in a discerning way. And so when we're considering how do we let our worldview inform we just, as Christians, we can't see apart from the gospel. Yeah. We don't separate our perspective from um, God's work in history and his redemptive plan through Christ and the coming kingdom. And so being really anchored in what do what do I believe and how does that impact the way I see the world so that as these things are coming to me, which honestly, the most easy sources of information are sometimes the most unreliable. So they're coming through the television or through the radio or Twitter, or whatever the medium is. So I think creating a way to be discerning about what to sift and consider and what to immediately throw away, I think that's a helpful starting point. And then being um, being comfortable engaging with people who may disagree with you and having these conversations in yeah. community. So when we're considering different viewpoints, even among brothers and sisters in Christ, we don't always agree completely, but being humble enough to receive and listen to people who have a different point of view only helps you solidify what you think and why you think it. And then if you consider people that are not Christians, just taking the humble posture of a listener, mm. and that's only going to help. And it only um, gains a hearing. So you yeah. want to listen, and you also want the opportunity to speak according to your gospel perspective, um, and you're going to gain that by by just taking a low posture of a learner. Man, that's good. It is good. So Matt, to your well, to your final. I don't you know that it. we have a ton of time. I just wanted. I just have to believe that there are businessmen and women and yeah. other men and women listening to this, and I just want to make the appeal that local governmental involvement bears much fruit for the church. Amen. And so, whether that's being on the school board or being on the city council or to to have believers in Christ in those positions is significant. And so if someone's listening to this and has never considered that, I just wanted to say it, that this is a good thing to consider and a good use of your time, um, that, that if you're thinking on the national landscape and that just feels overwhelming to you, that maybe a place to consider and prayerfully consider is things like the school board, the local city council, ways that you can be involved in the political process 
in your location, where you are, that faithful presence that we talked about earlier. It's not insignificant to be on the school board in your city or town. That's a massive role and a good use of your time as a Christian. And it's also not insignificant to know the people who are on your school board by name and know who your mayor is and who your representatives are at the state level, at the national level. I think most of us just as citizens couldn't even articulate that. And if we don't know the names of these men and women, we're likely not being faithful to pray for them, which is a way and maybe the primary way as Christians we engage this political process is to pray. It's easy and lazy to be critical about things that we're unwilling to be in the trenches to change. So we just need to stop being that way. Amen. Okay, so just kind of wrapping up this conversation and thinking about um, all all that there is politically. We come to November, and uh, and it is going to be a time that requires discernment from Christians. And to Anne Lincoln's point that she just made, it's a time that requires prayerfulness and a posture of humility and a recognition um, that Christ is our ultimate hope. And so these... Although challenging seasons, these are good seasons for the life of the believer where yeah. they press us and mold yeah. us and shape us to really really test what our hope is and where our hopes lie and all of those types of things. And so we get to move now into Ask TVC. Ask TVC is an opportunity for us just to engage uh, with folks who are listening and, and writing in and bringing up uh, various questions. And so we'll just, we'll just shift here. And uh, the first question is from at ChazJ9. So from at ChazJ9, uh, ChazJ9 says this, What's the point of communion? Should small children, toddlers participate? So, Anne Lincoln, do you want to you tackle that one? Yeah, I'd love to. So communion is an ordinance given to the church, um, instituted by Jesus on the night before he was betrayed. And it's an opportunity for us to remember his death in our place, his body broken, his blood shed. It's given to the church. Um, as a means of remembrance and as a proclamation of our hope in the gospel until he returns. And it's given for believers. And so um, children can and should participate in communion at the point at which they are born again and have a credible profession of faith. So they shouldn't just like practice communion? They should not just practice Just to get ready? Communion. No. For the real thing? They don't really need to get ready in that way. Okay, so... Um, Communion's for the believer. Communion is for the believer. Yeah. And if you got a little one and he or she's a believer, then. Yeah, according partake. to. Yeah, I think uh, for parents, this is a space that can be difficult to discern. Yeah. And I think that that's fine to acknowledge and really appropriate to acknowledge. Um, and so there is a wisdom in perhaps waiting for a season after a child makes a profession of faith that you, man, as far as you can discern, you believe that sincere. I think that there's wisdom potentially according to conscience and waiting for a season to let fruit come. And, um, and, and so waiting until, you know, you feel more comfortable in order to let them begin taking communion. Great. Next question from at Seth major underscore. So Seth major says this, uh, and Matt, this will be you. How do your sermons, if at all, influence shape the content of small groups? Do they work off each other? They they do work off each other, uh, almost always. Not always, but almost always. So there are seasons in which it's kind of an all-hands-on-deck, and we've prepared like a full-on booklet that, that goes along with the series 
By booklet, you mean curriculum? Yeah, curriculum that's written around it. And then sometimes it's a week-to-week kind of sermon notes here, you know, here's an outline and some questions to ask based on this last week's sermon. So we've done it both ways. I think we prefer, I know I prefer, not the giant build-out of curriculum, but rather the how do you apply the Word of God that you heard this weekend to your life. Um, And I find that to be easier to, to ring out. Um, of a sermon on a week to week basis than it is because any preacher knows, man. If you're if you're writing curriculum three months ago for a series that you're going to preach, that the application points are gonna are gonna shift a little bit, or at least in in the way I'm wired, they're gonna shift a little bit. And so Kyle actually worked with me on the beautiful design series to come up with those questions uh, that I believe now are a workbook that goes with that series. But but it was Kyle that I would talk with, meet with every week to build out those questions. Kyle, from a groups minister perspective, this is your world. You work in groups and serve in that capacity. How do you see the sermon relating in that? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, and I think it, it depends on what kind of topic we're addressing. Um, so I, I remember like in the Beautiful Design, we weren't necessarily like going through a book of the yeah. Bible. So um, each week there was a little bit uh, – they, they could be anywhere. Yeah. Um, and so having to kind of get the questions rooted in Scripture for that week, I think that's really what you're shooting for when you're trying to get curriculum into groups – that it's going to be running with the sermon series is try to get them back into the word. Yes, we really appreciate Matt's preaching. We, we appreciate all of the preachers who preach here. We want to honor them and we're thankful for the gifts that God has given them. And at the same time, we want to bring our people back to the word. I mean, that's what preaching is. So if the small groups curriculum is a, do we remember what Matt said? That's okay. Um, but if it is, Hey, is this rooting us in the word? Then that's a much better win. Okay. Um, so the short answer is yes. Uh, we do align our sermons and group curriculum. If yes. you're looking for examples of that, uh, it should be pretty easy to find on the website. Yep. Uh, so that curriculum is there uh, for the taking. So another question. This comes from at Big Easy 3737. I love right. that one. That's my favorite of the Twitter handles. At Big Easy 3737. Big E. Big Easy. I don't. The Big he... Easy is New Orleans, right? Yes. Okay. Are you serious? PhD? Well, I I, I thought that was the case. Okay. (laughs) Big Easy says this. Grew up Catholic, baptized, now embrace Reformed theology and attending a non-denominational church. Should I get baptized again? Kyle. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I've had the privilege of teaching um, a lot of baptism classes at the Dallas campus, and we run into this question uh, a lot. Every uh, class. Every class. Probably multiple people in each class. Uh, I've just, I just began to address it in front of the whole class because it was so common. Um, and it's not even just uh, for uh, those who grew up in Catholic denominations. Uh, there could be Methodists or Episcopals, Presbyterians that all are asking uh, the kind of same, the same question here. Uh, and so the short answer is, should I be baptized again? I, I would say if you have not been baptized following your conversion, then you should be baptized. I, I would hesitate to say be baptized again because I think there is one baptism, and that is bapti- baptism following conversion. Uh, and so I, I know that may seem a little harsh because the kind of logical extension of that is that the first one wasn't a baptism. Uh, and so I think one of the ways that I've tried to help people think through this because most of the time it was a, a loving 
um, most of the time godly grandparent or parent that brought you to that place. I mean, you didn't willingly say, I would like to be baptized as an infant. And so there can be a lot of family, like, how do I explain this to my family and love and honor them in the process? One of the ways that I like to do this is that in most traditions, infant baptism is really accompanied by a prayer, which is a plea that the Lord would raise this child up in the fear and admonition of the Lord, and that um, the child would grow up to love the Lord and to be loved by the Lord. Uh, And so I like to tell people, hey, listen, if you're considering being baptized, following your conversion, and if that's where you've landed as the biblical perspective on baptism, let, let me encourage you. You need to talk to your parents and sit them down and say, listen, thank you for seeking to honor the Lord with my life at a young age. Um, I want to thank you for that, for the prayers that you prayed. And I know that this may seem kind of confusing to you, but I really see this as the answer to many of the prayers that you were praying at that yeah, point so good. as an infant. So Good work, y- brother. Yes, and love and honor your parents in the process. Amen. Yeah. Hey, appreciate you guys, each and every one of you. Yeah. Thanks for being on the show. Thanks for having us. My yeah, pleasure. You bet. You bet. If there's anything you heard us talk about on the show that you'd like to know more about, you can find the details on our website at thevillagechurch.net. Look at the episode descriptions on our podcast show page. Have a note here to not mention the next episode because we're still solidifying it. Uh, but there is one coming. We just don't know exactly what it's going to be. I think, it's, Matt, are you going to be there? Um, I, I plan you on being be here, there. Lord willing. It's going to be awesome whatever it is. If you have a question, uh, like we do, like what's our next episode, uh, (laughs) then feel free to let us know on social media using the hashtag AskTBC. We'll be answering a handful every single episode. See you next time. God bless.